Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be catching up with two of our favorite activists, two for the price of one. Gwena Hunter, who was last here on episode 558, will be filling us in on her newest project, an amazing vegan food bank in Los Angeles. Sue Fisher, who was here on episode 618 to tell us about the campaign to save the Thule elk of Point Reyes National Seashore, who have been imprisoned and deprived of adequate food and water in the service of dairy and cattle operations, is going to catch us up on the latest developments in the growing campaign. I love these you know, kind of where are they now episodes. It We don't do them enough, but we happened to get these like updates from both of these extraordinary women at the same time. And we're like, that's an episode. Like it could have been five episodes, but incredible work being done here. Yeah, I know. They're both great activists. And and I, I totally agree with you. Like we interview people and then we move on. And so often I'd like to hear what, what came next. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I was really glad to hear about both of these. What they came were both next? really fun conversations. Yeah. What came next, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> good, good segue. Good yeah, segue. All right. Yeah, this was a big, big week for you. Uh, you published an article. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm a, coming a, a radio piece, I should say, with an accompanying article. Yeah, which I will be doing every Monday. It's just that this one, and I'm going to do my best to make them, you know, things that I care about as much as I can. And like, for example, next week, I'm featuring this yoga studio. And by the way, the yoga teacher is vegan for the re- for reasons that we can discuss. That isn't a part of the article, but because it's very specifically focused on this restorative yoga and sound healing event they have. Let's get back to, to, to this week. Sorry. So <laughs> I'm sleep deprived. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I had. I just want you all to know, I had to wake Jasmine up in order to record this. It is the middle of the day as we're doing well, I just this, so, I fell asleep. So take that, take that into account if she says anything remarkably odd. Yeah, well, yes. And I'm going to now use that as my excuse, regardless of whether or not I fell asleep. <laughs> so... This week, I had a piece come up about egg prices skyrocketing, and I was able to kind of connect with this advocacy organization that is doing a lot of work on this particular campaign, and they do a lot of work on a lot of large monopolies in big ag, things like, you know, collusion and things like that. So anyway, we skyrocketing prices. It's been in the news with eggs. Yeah, and I thought that the big missing story here was bird flu. I mean, that's what I've been saying all along. They're they're all saying it's just because of supply chain and and this and inflation and the same things that are rising are raising the prices of all other commodities. And the real story is bird flu. But you found another bigger story. Well, I started to write the story about bird flu because I was annoyed that it wasn't being covered. And I interviewed someone from Cornell, the Ag School, and and I said ag, ag. I have like in my New Jersey accent, sometimes ag and egg sound the same. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm bank. glad that Cornell doesn't have an egg school. It's bad enough it has an ag school. It's pretty no, much an no, egg no, school. No, no, no. That's not true. An ag school is totally fine. It's only the, the animal part of the ag school that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> so I interviewed him and then I, uh, some, I, I found this other organization that 
that's doing the, the campaign against the egg industry. And they did all of this research and found that, yes, there's rising prices because of avian flu. Yes, there's rising prices because of inflation, as it as is the case with a lot of other food. And yes, supply issues are also driving up prices. However, all of those things together are absolutely nowhere near what the egg industry is charging as the uptick in prices. And it became a, you know, a kind of, I mean, a kind of shocking story to me. And I think to the people I work with, they're like, what? Yeah. And so, I mean, the egg industry is showing record profit. Like they've never seen anything like this. And the egg prices have gone up 138%. Egg producers are reporting a tenfold year-over-year increase in gross profits. I really hope, I doubt that this is true because they always say that eggs are very, you know, are, are one of those commodities that are really resistant to people quitting them because of price rises. They're, they're, you know, people's loyalty to them, to them remains really, really good. But, but you know, as we pointed out last week, I think we were talking to some extent about the, the this issue as well. You know, Just Egg is really jumping in there trying to get people to to try alternatives. And I really hope that that does happen. Yeah, I, I agree. And that I do know that NPR did cover that story. And it brought up an this brought up an interesting, you know, I don't know if it was a conundrum or just an interesting challenge for me or an interesting circumstance, which is that I am working for a public media organization. I am a vegan working for a public media organization. I'm a vegan who has a lot of experience in vegan media, veg news and our hen house working in a public media organization. And I can't lead every story with veganism, but I would obviously never, I mean, this is hopefully needless to be said, but I would obviously never in a hundred zillion billion years, I would never do any story that was like against my veganism. It just might not all be directly related. I I think that's a really difficult difficult challenge. And I totally understand why you need to do it. It's not like the stuff, if you were like, the obvious story to me is always the suffering of the hens. That's the big story. And and there's just no way that, that, that you're going to be allowed to lead with that or probably even mention it uh, in mainstream media. Not that it's not true. <laughs> it's, you know, it's still news as far as I'm concerned, because it's all, it's not like that's fake. It's not like you're making it up, but all right, you, you, you can't say everything you want to say and you can't support every cause you want to support. But the fact that you're able to get this news out there when other people aren't even covering it at all and are just ignoring like what's going on with eggs, uh, I think that's really, really powerful. And, you know, certain certain changes have to be made in the way you cover stories. Yeah, and I, I will say that all of this points to, you know, what I think a lot of people who were reading or listening to the story would take in as, a real problem here that, you know, within the egg industry, and I'm focusing on one aspect of it, but this is a monopoly and it's a problem. (laughs) So anyway, I just wanted to chat about it because I did have a little bit of... In your eyes, it's a monopoly. That's probably disputed. True. But I, I did have some, you know, like an extra heap of respect and admiration for people like Jane Velez-Mitchell, who have worked in mainstream media, Susie Welsh, 
and have been able to get animal stories on the air. And and the thing is like, it, and my friend Beth Greenfield, who's in The Flock and is a senior editor at Yahoo, and I've written some stories for her. her she's doing all she can to get these stories these stories covered. And sometimes it's going to be a story like this where it's tangential and ultimately does not ever in a million years condone animal consumption or exploitation, but it has to sort of be a roundabout way sometimes. And that sucks, but we need to be working in the industry that we're working in. And I did get something in there about the amount of hens who were killed and the way they're killed. I have not seen that anywhere about the way they're killed. I agree. And you know, like I said before, it's not like that's something, it's not like that's an advocacy point. It's just true. It's just that other, ad, you know, outlets are leaving it out. So it's great that you got that in there. And this is tough. You know, living in the real world is a lot harder than living in the ve- vegan bubble, but it's worth it. Yeah, I have to also, I just want to add one thing. One person I interviewed, who's the manager of a food co-op here in Rochester, this didn't make it to the final story because everyone gets basically a line if they get a quote in it. uh, And it has to speak directly to the story. But he was telling me that at the co-op, he's noticing that non-vegans are quote unquote blending. That was the word he used, blending vegan and non-vegan foods. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, because of the price points, vegan food is in terms of price going down. And it seems to be the only food category that is, this is according to him, I didn't fact check this. And the other, you know, like beef is skyrocketing. Eggs are skyrocketing. Of course, we know lettuce is skyrocketing too because of the crop being decimated by a bug in California. So that's unfortunate. But anyway, I was like, this is the first time in nearly 20 years of being vegan that I ever heard anyone say (laughs) that non-vegans are making more vegan choices because the cost of vegan food is going down. Yeah. I mean, I would assume at the co-op, it's a little pricey. I mean, I've never looked at their prices of animal Mm -hmm. stuff, so I wouldn't know, but it might be going up more than the average. I think it's really, really hard for anything vegan to compete with, with animal foods because the animal foods are so subsidized. And that's another thing that articles generally leave out. But that's a really interesting fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it would almost tempt me to look at the, the price on the packages of meat to see what's going on, but not tempt me enough so that I'm actually going to do it because it would make me kind of ill. I, I looked at the prices of eggs, which I've never, I haven't really paid any attention to. And I was kind of flabbergasted by how expensive it was. Uh, and I was like, dang, they, the price used, used to be like a year and a half ago or December of 2020. One, it was a dollar seventy eight. A year later, December of twenty twenty two, it was four dollars and twenty five cents. Still, in, insanely cheap for for considering right. uh, that this is what has to go into. We don't they don't create eggs, but you know, stealing eggs from animals and getting them on the market and preserving them because they go bad and all of it. Still, insanely cheap. Yeah. Well, uh, and of course, it's the hens who pay the price. So keep an eye on my, let's see, my my newsletter. If you're not, this is a total shameless plug, jasminesinger.substack.com. There's no E on Jasmine, so it's J-A-S-M-I-N. jasminesinger.substack.com. I will link to my recent stories there. And 
every week I'll have one going up. And then every weekend, you can catch me hosting Weekend Edition if you get the WXXI app or if you're in Rochester, just listen on the radio. Anyway, tell us about you. You had some activity going on this week as well of a different, you know, uh, a, a different type of activity. But nonetheless, you were out there fighting the good fight. Well, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. But uh, I didn't actually fight anybody. But yeah, I was in a, um, a program uh, for the Women's Bar Association, the New York Women's Bar Association, which I'm a member of the committee there. And it was great. It was all on activist defense. And like, I'm just so proud of this committee that it put on this program that is basically recognizing the, the, the sacrifices that activists are, are making and the risks they are taking of going to prison. And, you know, we talked, we talked a lot. Well, the other panelist was Chris Carraway, who's actually the new staff attorney at the University of Denver's Activist Defense Clinic, which is specifically for animal activists. So he really knows what he's talking about. And the moderator was Michael Dorff, who is our, our dear friend and a professor at Cornell Law School. And uh, it was, it was really, really good to be able to talk about this stuff. Um, I, I could have had hours more if, if you, it's on YouTube, and if you want to listen to it, just be prepared. Don't don't do it at one and a half speed because I was talking as fast as I could go. I know a, pe- a lot of people do that. Listen at one and a half speed. I don't understand it. My brain doesn't go that fast. I listen at one point two speed to yeah. audiobook. Well, your brain must go really fast because you t- like I've never heard anybody t- like listening to you type scares me. You type faster than anybody I've ever heard. I have a typewriter. I've been sending people some letters on it. And I don't mean I on do a typewriter. I mean, I mean I know, on your computer. I'm telling you, on my typewriter, I type really slowly. And so I think between the two of them, I am a normal, you know, speed well, typer. Listening to you on a computer is just scary. We'll have to put that on an episode sometimes, just the sound of you typing something. And people will like, I do type. Anyway, I type faster than I think. We got a little distracted. Hang on. I have something to tell you first. I don't know about the program, but the photo of you was hot. You looked amazing in it. Oh, good. Oh, good. Most importantly. That's that's, that's (laughs) nice to hear. All right. Everybody go on YouTube and look at it or go on somewhere, wherever you saw this photograph and look at me. Uh, look at me. <laughs> All right, the program. All right, Chris Carraway was there. So he talked a lot about, you know, the issues for lawyers who are defending people who are doing this kind of activism, arguably illegal activism. Uh, and, you know, sometimes the interest of the of the lawyer is to defend the defendant. That's That's the lawyer's ethical obligation. And sometimes the defendant really doesn't want the defense of themselves they want a defense of their cause. And there could be a lot of conflict there. So that was super interesting. And then I just talked about some of the risks that, that people face and and some of the def- possible defenses. And, you know, we talked a lot about Utah. New York actually has a, a written necessity defense, which is kind of like a lesser of two evils defense. You committed what would have been a crime to to prevent a greater harm than committing the crime would have caused. But it's hard to get, you know, a court to to let you use that defense. And that's exactly what happened in Utah. And there are other defenses. The one they used in Utah, which we kind of all don't like, but actually it worked really well for them, was value that these piglets were so sick that and and so near death that they were valueless. So you couldn't be accused of stealing a property of value. 
you know, some other things as well, uh, possible conscientious objection case, especially to a, maybe to a sanctuary who has the animals and is being asked to hand them over. Uh, they might have a First Amendment right to conscientiously object to that. And I talked also about, you know, some of the laws that people might get convicted under, like regular state trespass, burglary, which is entering, uh, you know, a property in order to steal something. If you get convicted of the theft, it can get very, very serious here. There's the Federal Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which I think we haven't been talking about that much in this movement for a while because they haven't been chasing anybody under it. But, you know, it's that law is still out there and it's really scary. And the ag-gag laws, we don't have that in New York, but, you know, I talked a little bit about it. I just love being able to talk about this stuff. I feel like it's it's becoming more and more and more important. It's your favorite topic to talk about, I feel. Yeah, like. it really is. And yeah, it's funny when I first like came in, I was going to say entered the movement as if I like ran a race and I went through some ribbon or something and everyone was like, welcome to the movement. Oh, I was picturing a great big doorway and you, 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 oh my like, God, you just in. made me think of my dream last night. I, I dreamt that I was lost in the New York City subway system and that has become a recurring dream of mine. Huh. Anyway, I digress. They say that trains have, have are a sexual dream. Okay. <laughs> when I came into the movement, <laughs> then I uh, can't remember what I was saying at all. Oh, yeah, that's right. Shack 7, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. That was like pretty much all everyone talked about all the time. And and that was my first meetup I attended. There was a vegan meetup and I, I it didn't work for my schedule. There was like an animal rights meetup and then there was like a Shack 7 support meetup. And that was the first one I attended. Yeah, I, I feel like people were really, really frightened when it was first passed and probably more frightened than they needed to be because they were maybe overreading the statute. But now I feel like maybe they're a little less frightened than they need to be. Yeah, well, that's actually fascinating. All right, we'll keep the conversation going about that. Well done. Well done. We'll link to both the egg article, which I hope you think is excellent. And oh, my God. <laughs> I just want and, everybody to know that she makes this joke even when even when I'm the only person listening. <laughs> she says it all the time. The yolk's on so you. Stupid. The yolk's on you. <laughs> okay. We should get to the interviews, honestly. Please, please. So the first interview is with Gwena, and then we'll hear from Sue. But Gwena Hunter is the founder of Vegans of Los Angeles, aka Vegans of LA. In May of 2022, she launched the first vegan food bank in Los Angeles and is now the first Black woman to have a brick-and-mortar vegan food bank in the United States. Gwena is the co-author of the book, Vegan Voices for Animal Liberation and Vegan Voices, and has worked in the movement doing various forms of activism to help people make the connection and reprogram their own belief systems when it comes to the treatment of animals and how we see food. Gwena will be joining Marianne right after this. Socrates once said, the secret to change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. As you probably gathered from the opening quote, change is in the air. I've got big, gigantic, enormous, gargantuan news. Here at our hen house, we have been working behind the scenes for a while on a brand new community resource, and we couldn't be more thrilled to announce that it is now live. The Our Hen House community is a new online platform that will enable vegans and activists to connect with one another on our own dedicated social network. 
No more random social media ads, spam comments telling you about a miracle cure, or worry about your data being used in nefarious ways. Just an amazing community of change makers at your fingertips. We're really looking forward to having you by our side to grow this amazing networking platform into a one-of-a-kind movement resource that we truly believe will be an epic tool in our work to change the world for animals. Head on over to our henhouse.mn.co to join us. Again, it's ourhenhouse.mn.co. We can't wait to connect with you. We'll see you there. Welcome to our hen house, Gwenna. Thank you so much for having me again. I should say welcome back. You were you were on not that long ago. Uh, I think it was episode 558. And I highly recommend to anybody listening to check out all of the information there about your many projects in the LA vegan scene. But today we really want to focus on what's a new project and which we're super excited about. And that's the Vegans of LA Food Bank. And people know what a food bank is. And I could ask a lot of general questions about why food banks are important. But I know this issue is personal for you. And I've heard you say that you actually grew up in a food desert. You didn't think of it as a food desert when you were growing up. But thinking back on it, it's pretty clear to you. Can you share some of those experiences with yeah, us? Absolutely. So like you said, I grew up in a food desert, but I never knew that it was a food desert until I got involved in the vegan movement. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was totally me. Like there was we had a supermarket when I was growing up called Fazio's and they ended up closing down and we never got another one. And there weren't any for miles. But that was just to me the way of life like that wasn't weird. It wasn't discussed. No one was talking about it. It's just how it was. And you just we just accepted it. And this is in Cleveland, Ohio, by the way. So, yeah, I was used to that. And so growing up and living in Cleveland, living in different cities, I remember living like walking distance to a supermarket when I first left Cleveland to move to Miami. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I could walk to the supermarket and like it, it felt like luxury. <laughs> Yeah, walking to a supermarket actually is luxury. Yeah. That's a, a great thing to be able to do. And it's it's too hard for too many people. So one of the solutions that we've heard proposed for this is our food banks, because we can't necessarily persuade supermarkets to open up in every neighborhood. And when you can't, there are got to be other ways to bring people food. So just for those who aren't that familiar, tell us what a food bank is. And most of all, who it is that they're reaching and why they are so important to these people? So a food bank basically is a brick and mortar facility, a location where people can come and get free food. You just show up. Now, some are different. Not all have the same like level of like qualification. Some are mandated by certain grants and certain federal agencies. And so they have to comply with certain things. But for our food bank, the only thing we ask are how many people are in your household. So they don't have to show any identification. They don't have to show proof of income. They don't have to do anything other than show up and be human. And I won't even say be human. Like if a cow showed up, I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so you just got to be I hope you're keeping food there that is appropriate for cows, just in case. <laughs> uh, but it, it's really, really important for people to have food that's accessible to them. And before we get into more details about the food bank, it's also so important to point out that accessibility isn't the only issue 
for people when it comes to having access to healthy food and being able to eat in a way that serves you. What are some of the other barriers? One that always occurs to me is time. It, it takes a lot of time to make good food. It does. It does. And, you know, it doesn't always have to. But like you said, like you really want some good cultural food. Yeah. You're going to need all types of ingredients and see and seasonings sometimes are expensive. My goodness, especially if you want to get organic seasoning. So, yeah, those are definitely huge barriers. And also just information. I mean, I know we're in an information era, but people pick and choose what they want to focus their attention on. And diet isn't always that thing. And digging deep isn't always that thing. There are so many distractions. I know I definitely get distracted by so much information and what's going on here and AI over here and robots over there. And it's like, you know what? <laughs> the other thing with information about food, too, is that there's so much contradictory information out there. And there may be a lot of information out there, but it sure isn't all true. <laughs> it's hard to parse through it. And most people, and I got to put this in a way that is compassionate, maybe it won't sound compassionate, but I do feel compassion because I have been this person in this particular area. Most people don't want to also do the work, do the research. And also, too, most people believe what they've been taught. Who doesn't? And you can't fault people for that. Like you're told to go to school and get good grades and listen. And then you do that and you find out that you've been lied to. So I know for me, when this thing cracked wide open and I realized that you didn't need animal flesh for protein, I'm like, what? And then I found out that the meat and dairy industry provides funding for the public schools. And I'm like, connecting all these dots in my mind was just like completely exploding. And I was angry and I was upset. So it takes a lot of bravery, in my opinion, to investigate and get the truth, because sometimes I think there's a little bit of an imbalance that comes with getting all this new information and realizing that you've been lied to your whole life. It's a huge betrayal. It sure is. And I think always one of the best ways to reach people on anything is with food, because people love food. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're trying to reach people with healthy food. And I don't know, advice always comes better when it's accompanied with something to eat. So tell us how it works. Let's get into the details. In order to found this, this vegan food bank, you actually partnered with an already established food bank. Is that right? That seems like a great that way to start. How did 100% that work? 100% correct. And what's crazy is I would love to be the genius in this and say, oh, I thought of this. I did not. Want, sorry, my cat is wanting attention. <laughs> oh, believe me. Mine will, mine will be here soon. So uh, everybody, everybody out there, you'll just have to listen to the cats from time to time. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, what ended up happening, because I was looking to partner with like either a YMCA or a church or a community center, someplace that has space. And the more I investigated on what I needed, the more I started getting a little bit nervous because I'm like, oh, God, I do need to get trucks. I do need freezers and refrigerators. I do need huge space. I need somebody that's going to go in this truck and pick up this stuff. I need somebody that's got the muscle to move all this stuff around. And the tab was getting very expensive. And I'm like, I might I might be out of my range here. But I know this was a divine implant like to have a vegan food bank i know this is what i'm supposed to do but i'm a universe person so i'm like you know what universe i'm thinking too hard this is stressing me out i don't want to make the wrong decision i need this to fall into my lap 
and I needed to fall into my lap gently. I need to recognize it when it appears and I need it to be a beautiful experience because I deserve this. I deserve to not stress out and work hard. I deserve this to just come to me. <laughs> and so I literally like let it go. And within a few weeks, maybe two to four weeks, I ended up meeting this gentleman that needed help with some, he was doing a vegan thing at US, uh, USC and wanted my opinion and assistance on some things. And we met for lunch and we're talking. And he's like, yeah, I have a food bank. And I'm like, oh, and the light bulb still didn't go off. I'm like, okay. I'm like, that's cool. I'm like, I'm trying to have a food bank too, but all vegan. And he's like, instead of you started from scratch because it's so much. He was like, why don't you just partner with me and just take over part of my food bank and you can have your vegan food bank. And I'm like, what? And that this, I heard angel wings and doves. I saw harps <laughs> and, and angels singing. And I'm like, this is the one. <laughs> yeah, that really is. That's an amazing story. Yeah. So where is, I don't know whether it's his or his organization's food bank. How often does it distribute food? And then what is your way of participating? So the food bank is called Hope on Union. That is the actual brick and mortar Hope on Union. And they operate every Thursday. So they distribute every Thursday for two hours. And there's hundreds of people that show up. Because, you know, you think, oh, two hours, that's a really short window. But the amount of people that show up, we wouldn't be able to serve everybody if it was like eight to five. And so I take over once per month, every third Thursday of the month. And I have my own freezers and now and I can't even use words to describe how amazing this partnership has been. I mean, it's still a human experience. There's still little bumps and getting to know people's personalities and sharing the power and the knowledge in this, but it's really turned into a, a family type of experience and has taught me a lot about partnering and partnerships and collaborating with people and using your compassion and kindness that you like to use on people to go vegan, using that in relationships as well, using that with human beings, which is an issue that I do have in the vegan community is most of us, well, a lot of what I've seen, people tend to compartmentalize their compassion for animals and openly brag about how they hate people or they don't like people. And I get it because I'm an introvert by heart. I have a, a probably a two hour window of being in a social situation and it's like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> so I understand, but we really have to watch disliking and cursing our own species. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And even if, if we continue to feel that way, we got to pretend we don't. And hopefully by pretending we'll get to a better place with at least some people. I'm so impressed that you are able to work with people so smoothly when they aren't vegan and you're vegan and that isn't getting in the way. Has that caused any problems that the rest of the food bank is not on board? So here's the thing, you know, it is so weird. There's about maybe five people that I work with there consistently that are employees or diehard volunteers. And I felt like in the beginning, they were like, what vegan? Like they were not (laughs) as on board. (laughs) And Sonny, who is the creator of the Hope on Union Food Bank, he wouldn't be there for most of the stuff. Like he's, he comes in, checks in and he's out of there. So I'm with everybody else. And they're kind of looking at me like, 
you know, and I'm like, oh boy. So <laughs> it was very important for me to make sure that I was very conscious of this is to make sure that I was not showing judgment, that I was not saying things like, ew, because there are dairy products sometimes in the food. Right. Bank. I would assume there are yeah. animal parts in the food bank. It used to be a meat market. It is. It's, I know it's <laughs> the irony of it all. Like there's an old sign that says meat market on the side. Well, isn't that a blessing that you have yes. turned a meat market at Thank least partially you. into a vegan Thank space? Thank you for recognizing that because I've noticed when some people come in to volunteer that are vegans, they'll see stuff and I could see they're feeling triggered. And it's like, no, this is freaking awesome. Like you're in a place, yeah. you know, turning a place that was used for one thing and now we're kind of shifting the energy and using it for something else. So thank you for recognizing that instantly because a lot of people get triggered by that and they don't see their way out of it and they just stay in those triggers. Yeah, you have to see your way out of it. Let's let's talk a little bit about the food. What kinds of food do, are people able to find here and where do you get this food? It sounds like a huge undertaking, particularly since I understand you deal with a lot of produce, which, of course, doesn't keep. Yeah. So the way it's set up, you know, I work with a wholesaler to get certain things that we don't get donated. So we work with foodforward.org and they're a food rescue program and they get a lot of things from supermarkets and farmers markets. And we go pick up pallets of things and then we have to sort through it. Because, you know, some of it's good, some of it isn't. And we sort through it and, you know, we keep what's good and we share that with our customers. And then, in, like I said, in addition to that, I work with the wholesaler, What's Good Produce. And there are certain things that I buy that I may realize I probably won't get through the donations. So I usually will purchase things like tomatillos because it's a Mexican, mostly Mexican community. Right. So I don't want to just give them what I think I want them to have. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's certain things I'm like, oh my God, I want I want them to try this, you know, but for the most part, I get them what they want and what they need. So tomatillas, we have cabbage, we have spinach, mushrooms, fruits, bananas all the time, always, always grains, lentils, beans, Peanut butter is usually either pistachios or walnuts. Raisins are always a staple. And then the past, I think it's been every single month. I think it's been every single month we've gotten um, a magical experience with getting some vegan meats donated. So GTFO as vegan was, they were the first to donate physical. Well, not the first, but... We're local where we were able to go and pick up a bunch of stuff that they donated to us. And it was absolutely wonderful. All Vegetarian Inc. They do vegan shrimp, nuggets, drums for a lot of restaurants in the area. And they donated a ton of stuff to us and excellent ingredients, non-GMO. And so we donate those items as well to the customers. And yeah, it's been a great experience. That's an amazing story that you're getting. I I, I want to shop. In there. It, sounds, it sounds like you have everything that I want. But what are the reactions to people? I'm assuming that most of the people that you serve are not vegan no. or not thinking about vegan. So what kind of reaction do you get? Do you get pushback or enthusiasm? Most of the time what? it's complete cooperation. So the way the food bank is set up, 
everything gets lined up in front of the food bank on the sidewalk. And we have volunteers that are assigned to each box, like each area of food. And so the people are lined up. We open up at eight, but if you get there at six o'clock, there's already a line around the corner, like to show you what, the, how deep the need is. And, um, we open the lines at eight and they come up one by one and they decide what they want in their bags. So we let them decide and, and drop it in there. So with vegan food, a lot of people. You mean the vegans, like all the food's vegan, but you mean the vegan specialty items? Yeah. All the items are lined up this way. But when it comes to the specialty items, I usually will have someone that speaks Spanish if it's something that I'm like, this needs to really be explained just in case. So I think we got some. Uh, Omni meat and these large packs of Omni meats. We were giving those out. So our Spanish speaker, he was explaining, "Oh, this is vegan. It's a vegan pork." And after he was like carnitas, and you know, talking to them about it, and they're like, "Okay, see, see." So they would try it. Maybe about one percent would say no, which is very small. But for the most part, people. Really yeah. small. Yeah, but yeah. for the most part, people were just grateful to have so much bounty, first of all. And that's why, and, and we're also, we make sure we're in a really good mood because you can go to these places and people are just putting stuff and you don't care. You know, if you're in need, you'll take whatever attitude you take. But people just throw stuff in there. But with us, it's like, please be conscious of eye contact. Please be conscious of saying good morning. Hello, please. Thank you you know, put on a smile, like, look what we're doing. So it's like, to me, it's also like a, a little healing center. I tell people, like, if you're feeling down and you need a boost, come and volunteer. It'll, yeah. it'll shift yeah. you. Food activism is just so beautiful yeah. because so much of what we do in animal rights is so burdensome and negative and it's just learning horrible things. But food activism, it's, it really can bring you happiness. You're helping people, you're helping animals. You're looking at food. Who doesn't like that? Do you have messaging at all as to the reasons why everything is vegan? I know that you're vegan for both for healthful reasons, but also your passion for the animals. And I'm just wondering, is there any messaging around any of those reasons at all? Or is it just you offer the food and they take it? Oh, you mean like, am I giving out any literature or things like that? Yeah. Or, or any, are you messaging in any other way? Like, are you telling people why vegan? Well, initially we were giving out booklets. We were using vegan outreaches booklets, but they have a lot that are in Spanish. And so we were doing that the first couple of months. But a lot of the people that come are repeat for the most part. And I was kind of repeating the material. So then I started working on my own, but it's on hold right now. And so the goal for next year is to have like create recipes in Spanish for the items that we have and to give those out until I find some more Spanish-speaking booklets that are appropriate for this particular community and until I finish my own. That's exciting. I'll be looking forward to hearing about that. Are any of your recipients, I mean, it doesn't sound like it from what you said, but are any of them actually on board or like vegan? Like, do you have people coming who are vegan who are thrilled to find find this? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I started, I volunteered at the food bank before I launched in May because I needed to get an understanding of the community, what it felt like, how to respond to them. Like I needed to put my hands in it and practice and just see how the whole thing operates. And there were a couple of gentlemen. I remember there was one guy that was 
that was vegan that would come. And he's like, it's so hard to find vegan stuff at these food banks because he said he he juices. And I'm like, well, just hold on. I'm launching soon. So I'm going to have some stuff for you. You're going to love it. So it was interesting. We would talk about veganism. There are some people that are vegetarian, a small percentage. But for the most part, they eat meat. Yeah. No, I would assume so. I, I'm surprised. Well, I'm not surprised there are any. We are everywhere. Yeah. But in small numbers, usually. So, yeah. So it, it's a great combination of helping people who want to be vegan and also introducing veganism to people who never entered their head. So is this it or are you planning for expansion? I'm going to let it just come to me, because if I think too hard on expansion, it's you know, I'm trying to I haven't even completed it for a, a year yet. So it's like I really want to master this particular area. Because like I said, for the past few months, we haven't done a lot of book lists and things like that. But now I feel like I have the trust of the community. I go down sometimes and I say good morning to people while they're in the line. Thank you for waiting. And it just creates this, I don't know, this like kind of an invisible bond and this trust that I'm, I've just started to like really, really, really feel inside of me. So my point in saying all this is that I'm not in a hurry to expand, but if the opportunity presents itself and it is the right opportunity, I will definitely act on it. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that because it does seem like that that's what happens to you. Things present themselves. Another thing that I don't know a lot about, but it's a, on a separate topic, is the Jubilee Vegan Cafe at USC. Yes, is that something that you're is that something that you're working on? Is that where you got in touch with the fellow who, yes, who runs you, the food? Oh bank? my god, you connect the dots very quickly and easily because I didn't even tell you that. But yeah, that's how I connected with him because he was starting this at USC and he's not vegan. But what's interesting, I will tell you, they have a church service, obviously, on Sundays, and they usually have like a communal meal with everyone. And he said that they're now, which has been probably for the past few months, now all vegan. Like, not the people, but the meal is now all vegan. And so I think that's wonderful. I think that's absolutely wonderful. It's amazing. Yeah, it's wonderful. So you can influence without, and I'm punching my arms at the, my fist at the screen for those that are listening. <laughs> you know, and I, and I get the punching. I get the urgency because it's like, oh, my God, what's happening right now? And we need this to stop. But I am telling you that if you exude and give forth patience and kindness and just let people be themselves while they're around you, you can have influence and lasting influence. Yeah, one thing that I wonder about, I mean, it happened for you, but food banks can be a difficult kind of activism for vegans to get involved in, as so much so much related to food can be. Obviously, people can donate to food banks. That's one very easy way. But if you really want to get involved in running it, there's the conflict of, you know, and it's not a vegan food bank. There's that conflict of, do I really want to get involved in serving animals to people? What's your advice to someone who really has a passion for this kind of work but and wants to volunteer, but doesn't want to get caught up in distributing non-vegan food? Like, is the only thing to do what you're doing, just start your own? I mean, I got my experience from this working for vegan outreach and doing food outreach programs on site. I mean, we were kind of like a mobile food bank in a sense. So we would go to different social justice organizations each month and have produce brought there and we 
sorted and put it in bags and their community members would come and get it. So there's so many things that you can do. Food Forward is a great organization. Also Food Cycle LA is another partner of ours that we just partner with that is now donating. They donate things. They get things from farmers markets and also places like Sprouts and some high-end supermarkets. So they have some really amazing items as well. So that, and then partner with someone that's already existing because I tell you, I've been doing this now, I think this is seven, the seventh month. The amount of information I have learned, like I'm learning things I didn't know were learnable. <laughs> I'm learning things I didn't know were there for me to even learn. And that's on a business level and also on a spiritual level and emotional level and learning how to, like I said, really create lasting and trustworthy relationships. So yeah, partner with someone so you can learn the ropes. Yeah. Now, when you first started talking about it and talking about the trucks and the freezers, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I was so Well, imagine daunting. how I felt trying to figure this whole thing out on my own. <laughs> and what's amazing about that statement you just said, because that was one of the things that was like giving me a little bit of like little baby panic attacks were um, the fact that I needed freezers, refrigerators, and a truck and space. And so when I'm talking to Sonny, the owner of the food bank. He literally says, I have freezers, I have refrigerators, I have... Tr-. It was almost like he was selling me. And I was just like, <laughs> mine was completely blown. I said, everything that I asked for, this man just provided to me. Like, yeah, it's been amazing. amazing. Well, I am so glad that you are here today to share it with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing it and for sharing with us. And I'm sure inspiring others too to get involved. It's fabulous work. And it feels good. And for me, it's also healing because when I first came to Los Angeles, it was July 4th, 2014. And I came to visit a guy and things just went crazy. And I found myself houseless. I had a roof, was able to always have a roof, but I didn't have a place, a real place to stay. And I thought I was going to end up in a shelter. And so that didn't happen, but things were rough. And I remember one time having $5 for the week to eat. And I had to figure out how to make $5 stretch. And luckily the 99 cent stores here are pretty decent, but knowing what that felt like, like I know what it feels like to be afraid of how you're gonna feed, not just yourself, if you have a family. Most of our people are like families of four and five. Like it's enough to deal with yourself You got to look at some children, maybe a a grandparent or two. And so for me, this is very healing work because it heals that part of me that dealt with that fear and that anxiety of how am I going to eat? What am I going to do next week? If you know that you're going to have food in your stomach and you can feel a little bit safe for a couple of weeks, I always say that can lead to hope. Hope can lead to accomplishing a goal. Accomplishing a goal can lead to higher levels of achievement. People don't realize if they've never dealt with food scarcity or food scariness of how fearful that is and how that can really affect many areas of your life. Yeah, that is a beautiful description. A harrowing but beautiful description of how the thought of being without food and how healing it can be to know that there is some food available and how beautiful it is 
that the food you're providing to people isn't a result of violence. So it really is such powerful work. Thank you so much, Gwenna. Gosh, Gwenna is like a a firecracker. Yeah, she really is. She's a powerhouse. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, she is one of those people that I look up to so friggin' much. Like I, there, there's, I look up to everyone we have on the podcast, but there are a few people who I'm like, ah, anyway, Gwen is one of them. And Sue Fisher is just another absolutely extraordinary activist working to change the world for animals. And uh, we'll get to her interview in just a second. She's a registered dietitian. She's been vegan since 2012. Her advocacy had predominantly been related to food, but while viewing the film The Shame of Point Reyes, Sue was struck by how the situation of the Thule elk in Point Reyes National Seashore, not far from where she lived, made no sense. Thule elk, and as Sue would come to learn, other native animals and plants living in the park were suffering due to the dairies and the ranches that occupy approximately a third of the park. So she joined a growing group of activists advocating for the Thule elk and their home, Point Reyes National Seashore. Sue will be joining Marianne. Welcome to our hen house, Sue. Thank you for having me, Marianne, and thank you for caring about the Tule Elk and Point Reyes National Seashore. It is such a compelling issue. And for those of you who aren't aware, we, of course, had Sue on, I think it was episode 618. And I highly recommend you listen to that interview because you really went into detail about this insane situation of like why there are dairy, quote unquote, farms and cattle, quote unquote, ranches in one of the most beautiful national parks in in this country. But for those who missed that or don't remember that interview, can you just quickly recap what the basic situation is? Okay, I'll try to just sum this up as briefly as I can. Point Reyes National Seashore is a national park unit. It's this incredible 70,000 plus acre oasis of nature, a mere 35, 37 miles from San Francisco. It was created in 1962, and when it was created, there were dairies and ranches uh, located in part of the park. And they were paid, in today's dollars, $400 million for their land. And given a period of, you know, typically it was about 25 years to continue, you know, working and using the land, and then they would move on. Well, that was 1962. The 25 years have come and gone and they're still there and the park is extending, um, allowing them to extend their stay. In 2015, three environmental groups sued the park service because uh, the death of Tule Elk, in fact, half of the herd that's kept in Tamales Point, it's called the Tamales Point Sanctuary, they died because the Tule elk that are held behind this eight-foot, three-mile fence don't have access to adequate water and forage. In fact, they would probably not even choose to live there if they weren't held there because their browsers and grazers and the plants that they prefer are not there. Just such a ridiculous story that this has been allowed to happen. Tell us a little bit about who the Tule elk are. 
The tule elk, they're endemic to California. They were hunted to near extinction by white, white settlers in the late 1800s. They had coexisted just fine for thousands of years with the indigenous people who, who lived on the land. They were reintroduced into the park in the 70s. And their, you know, their numbers gradually grew, but throughout the entire state, there's 5,000 Tule elk, which is 1% of their original uh, population. There's 5,000 cows alone in Point Reyes National Seashore, and they take over one third of the park. As far as the Tule elk right now, there's three, they're located in three areas in the park. Two are considered free ranging, which I wouldn't even call that completely free-ranging because there's like 350 miles of fencing throughout the park. So they will they will encounter this fencing from, from the farms, the dairies, and ranches. So the, the, you have the two considered free-roaming herds, and then the Tamales Point herd is actually held behind an eight-foot, three-mile fence. They died during the drought in 2015. And then this lawsuit brought about that the park had to do a new general management plan. And in this plan, they had to decide between various levels of whether they'd allow ranching or completely eliminate it. So again, long story short, after much public outcry and various conservation groups, environmental groups saying you need to to remove ranching and dairies from the park and allow uh, wildlife to come back and the habitat to regenerate, they chose to not only allow ranching and dairies to continue, but to let them expand their operations with 20-year leases. So this was approved in 2021. It's The leases have not been signed yet, and I can go into that in a little while why I think they probably haven't been signed. But in the meantime, the Tule elk are still behind the fence. They're suffering from lack of water and forage. The last count in 2021 in the elk reserve, their numbers went down by 72 and they were down to 221 individuals. The year before the count, they went down by 152. What's very interesting is the count is usually done in December. December has come and gone and the park service has said nothing, which worries me, like, are the numbers so bad that they don't even want to share them? That sure sounds like what's happening, doesn't it? Yes. And then in September of this past year, the Sierra Club sent a letter to the park and they said, hey, we've been out to this reserve, which I hate that word reserve. It's not reserve. I think I said sanctuary earlier. It's not a sanctuary. It's called the Tamales Point uh, Reserve. It's it's the Tamales Point Prison really, if you think about it, because the elk can't leave. So they sent this letter saying, we observed the water tanks out here because, and I think I explained that on the the last episode, the park finally did provide, after much outcry from the public and protests, tanks that feed some trowels with water. They did that in 2021. Well, now it's 2022, and in September it was really dry. This was before these torrential rains in California. And the Sierra Club noted that the troughs were near empty or covered with algae. So they notified the park. And the park, within a week, then it it comes up on their website. We've been out to the reserve, and we're 
We're maintaining the troughs and the tanks. We replaced a spigot and we turned the spigots on from the tanks to the troughs. But they never said anything about filling the tanks with water. So other individuals who had been out there prior to that said the tanks are empty at this point. And, you know, it's expensive for them to truck water out there to these water tanks. So they just have this way, like they make these statements that sounds like they're really doing something beneficial, but are they really doing something beneficial or just trying to kind of cover their tracks and make themselves look good? So I would say, you know, the Thule out there, they're not doing great. Well, they're not doing well behind uh, that fence. I think I heard some story about the fence having been cut uh, at some point. What happened there? Back in mid-October, 14 fence posts were uh, chainsawed down, 14 posts that make up this this, um, three-mile fence. And there was a handwritten banner that was left that said, life is free. It just happened that Jack Gescheit, who is the organizer and works with IDA in defense of animals, just happened to be out there hiking and looking around because he was planning about a week after that we were to have the uh, water bucket brigade, which is um, an event we've done before where we carry it's several miles out to the troughs or actually out to a pond. We go out to a pond and carry water. And it's a good um, way to generate publicity, showing that people have to bring water to the elk. We realize it's not enough water. And you do it on a Saturday. There's lots of park visitors. You can give them information. So it's just, it's a good, good outreach. Well, he happened to be out there and he saw these downed posts. And his you know, first thought is, if the elk get tangled up in this, it, it will cause them harm. This is not good. And then think about it. They're not truly free because what will happen, they'll roam onto this leased land. They won't be welcome they'll, there. They'll be hazed and, and who knows what. So he actually contacted the Park Service to say this had happened. I'm not responsible. Our groups, the Coalition to Save Point Reyes National Seashore, we did not do this. So the Park Service then uh, repaired the fencing and no harm whatsoever came to the the elk. It got a little bit of traction in the news, but not much. But here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you heard, but just recently, maybe a week and a half ago or so, somebody took to Twitter... And they go by, you can find it on Twitter, I like Tule Elk. This person said that they cut the fence. They did it on their own, um, just as a person, a part of the public. They take, uh, and they plan to take no further action at this time. And they wrote a very long letter to the Park Service. This letter was also obtained by the Pacific Sun, and they wrote an in-depth article on this now. And it's interesting. I read the letter. You can read the letter on Twitter. It's, I like Tule Elk. And the person's very knowledgeable as to the whole situation and the history behind this. They, they really took the time to know what's going on. And, you know, they said they just want to draw attention to the fact that these animals are suffering in a national park. And the Park Service, they just really don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. It's almost like they'd like the animals to just you know, you feel like if their numbers keep going down and eventually not, they're not there, then the Park Service doesn't have to deal with it any longer. There's not a doubt in my mind that they they just want these animals gone. 
right. they're just a nuisance to them and and they're not they're not trying to give them appropriate habitat or keep them healthy or anything it it just seems obvious that they're a headache to them and they would like them gone Right. And it seems like, you know, they're in the pocket of the ranchers. When I say the Park Service, I mean, it's the higher up Park Service. I don't. It's not totally. I totally. That's always the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That that, you know, even even dealing with the USDA, a lot of the inspectors who works with the USDA, they're really trying to do their job and they're being stymied from uh, from up above. You see that so often with federal employees. Right. I, I've never had a problem out at the park when I've been at the visitor center passing out brochures or we've at, been at a protest, the, the park service phones. Yeah, they're caught in the middle. So initially when the fence was cut, I was, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, the, the elk could be harmed by this and they're going to end up on ranch land and they'll be hazed. Nothing bad came of the elk and, it, you know, then it generated more publicity. Yeah. And this person yeah. is now on um, Twitter and, you know, so I think it worked out. It worked out okay. Yeah. Yes, it worked out okay. And I, you know, I'm not going to throw anyone's activism under the bus. So Totally. That's the worst thing that can happen in any campaign is for the activists to start sniping at each other. I mean, sometimes people do things that you just have to speak out against. Right. But it sounds like this person, like, meant well maybe didn't do the wisest thing or maybe did. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I'm so glad that it actually, although the way it came together, it, it really worked out for the best. The last time we spoke, there were, I think, more than one lawsuit uh, going on. They were in kind of early stages. Are there any updates on that? Okay, so there is the lawsuit that you know of, but it's the, um, the animal law clinic at the Harvard Law School. That was last March 21st that that was filed. And when they initially filed it, they also asked for, it was like an injunction and restraining order. I don't think I have all the legal terms, correct? No, it doesn't matter. What they asked for is that, okay, this lawsuit is being presented because of the deaths of the Tule elk within the reserve. And it's three citizens that are doing this. And it's Jack Scheidt, who organizes the protests, the filmmaker Skylar Thomas, of course, who did The Shame of Point Reyes, and another woman who's involved with a conservation group in that area. And so they, what the lawsuit asked for is in the meantime, while this could stretch out, we want the Park Service to provide adequate water and nutrition. And unfortunately, that was denied. The case was heard last February, and the judge hasn't ruled on it yet. So we're just waiting to see. And some people are saying, well, rattle that judge, tell him to hurry up. But the advice that everyone's receiving, the legal advice is you don't annoy a judge. It's not going to make anything happen. They will decide the case when they want to decide the case. They don't care. I mean, there was, if an emergency happened or something, you could bring another could. motion or whatever. But but you can't just like force a judge to, to rule quickly. No. And then there's another lawsuit was filed. The same environmental groups that filed the lawsuit in 2015 that kind of got this all rolling with looking at ranching and dairy. And they, of course, filed another lawsuit after the park decided that they were going to let the ag businesses not only continue to expand and give them 20-year leases. So that lawsuit is ongoing. And I have no idea how that is playing out. No, they're, they're not saying anything at this point. But what's interesting and what some folks who 
understand legal aspects better is that is most likely what is preventing the leases from being signed because it's been well over a year since it was stated that they were going to do that and the leases have not been signed. So I think the lawsuits help to not only bring more publicity to it, but it stalls the whole process of park service moving forward. So I I look at it as good. That sounds like you might be right. I mean, unfortunately, like the elk are still there and suffering during this whole period that that it's good it's good to have that delay but the delay isn't helping the elk in, in the meantime from what I'm you're saying it sounds like my the answer is no but have they done anything to improve the situation uh for for the elk it sounds like they've done the opposite if they've let the water tanks run dry right i mean they provided them but then it's just questionable and they may and who knows in september when this all played out And then people would have, the public would have continued to question, and then they most likely would have had to fill the tanks. You know, after, you know, the public cries out, they're forced to do things. Fortunately, it rained before that became an issue. We've had, I guess that's one good thing about the torrential rains we've had. The ponds are now filled and the Mm -hmm. elk do have adequate water. They have access to, they've provided mineral licks because the forage there does not provide some of the minerals they need. I think copper and selenium are a problem. So, you know, that's good. But nevertheless, they need to, they need to be free ranging. And the last time they did an elk management plan for the fenced elk was in 98. And per that plan, it said the best strategy going forward would be to have the elk free roaming and that they were the original native animals in that area and they should be free ranging by the own, their own plan states that. And in 94, they had an elk expert panel look into the situation and they said the same thing, basically. So I'm not sure I have this right, but you talked before about the, the, the loss, the original lawsuit in which they were required to do this general management plan. Correct. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they didn't really, in the, they did a general management plan, but they didn't really address these particular elk, these elk who are being held prisoner and what their plan was for them. Is that right? And are they going to be doing, I mean, do they, aren't they required to do a plan for these elk and reveal perhaps what it is they're thinking? The previous lawsuit was due to the deaths of the elk in the reserve which is they're in the reserve because of ranching. So really that lawsuit was looking at that and then the idea of getting ranching out of ranching and dairies out of the park. But it does that general management plan does not address that reserve. So what the park service is saying is now that they're going to do a, a new elk management plan, which is interesting because one of the volunteers and members of the Coalition to Save Point Reyes Um, National Seashore is a retired attorney that worked for the government and just is an an expert on park service law. And he said that that goes against their rules. You don't do a management plan for an animal, the elk, before you do a general management plan and decide how you're going to use the land in that area. So he's, you know, they're already bringing that up, that the Park Service, are they even going about this correctly? And are they just trying to do this process-oriented 
plan to to get what they want. I, who knows? Yeah. It all does sound very dicey, and and like delay is obviously an important factor here. And it, like what you said before, it just sounds like they really hope that they can just get rid of these elk. But hopefully, the activists will stand in the way of that happening. What is happening on the activism front? You know, there there's been quite a few different events that have happened, and for example, there was the there was an event that was held in San Francisco, Free the Tule Elk and Cut the Cow Crap. And IDA and Jack Gashite put that on. And that was a good event because it was held in Chrissy Field, which is an area where you get a lot of foot traffic, people coming through. And IDA made these really professional, informative pamphlets that we could give out to the public. IDA has been very helpful. In fact, if you go to IDAUSA.org and just type in the search Tule Elk, they give nice information on it and give you ideas on what you could do to help if if anyone is interested. So they had that was an event and there were speakers again just informing the public of what is happening. There was another event organized by Jack and IDA, and that was the hazmat suit walk. And IDA provided us with, there had to be 40 of us, and we wore these yellow hazmat suits and walked from a public uh, access point in the park, Kehoe Lagoon, to Kehoe Beach. And this was an area where one of the environmental groups along with IDA, tested the water and found that the levels of three different types of bacteria far exceeded healthful limits for humans. And I want to stress when they tested the water, this was Western Watersheds Project, the California division. When they tested the water, they didn't do it themselves. Nobody that was affiliated with this group that, you know, would like to see ranching leave. It was sent to an independent firm. So it was all on the up and up. So that was an event to raise awareness to these levels of of bacteria in the water. And it's interesting, the Park Service was presented with this information, hey, look, what's going on here? They never responded to it. And in fact, it was the county then that posted warning signs at the beach area, but then took them down the next day because they decided it wasn't their jurisdiction. It had to come from the Park Service. Well, what a mess. I mean, I'm just so glad the activists are still hanging in there, still coming up with creative protests. But but it's just very, very frustrating situation. I can imagine being being there and seeing all of this happen and 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 not being able to stop it when it, it like of all of the issues we deal with. This just seems like an easy one. Of course, these elk should be allowed to roam wherever they want. And there should not be dairy and cattle farms on national parks. One of the most beautiful places Agreed. in this country. It's just all a, a disgrace. So so what do you think? Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? I like to think so. I mean, there's so many people working on this because when I say the Coalition to Save Point Reyes National Seashore, this is just a conglomeration of all different environmental groups, conservation groups, people, animal activists coming together. For example, Miyoko Shinner is very involved in this and has been very outspoken. At the last California Coastal Commission water hearing on the issues having to do with how the, this impacts, obviously, our coastal waters, because this 
this park is on the coast and you have all this manure that and bacteria that's being carried into the water. Jane made a statement and actually played the uh, Tule Elk song. So I just, I'm hopeful and I, I see it coming to an end. There's so many people working on this and let's face it, like dairy is hurting already. So now these ranchers are going to have more demands put on them because people are demanding. They want the water clean. They they don't want this going on anymore. Another an example, a problem that came up, several ranching um, buildings were found to have non-existent or faulty septic systems found by the public. The Park Service never finds finds the problems. The public finds it, reports it, you never hear back on it. And some of the this waste was being dispersed onto fields, which then gets carried into the water. Well, this has been shared with the California Coastal Commission. And so again, there's more eyes on this watching. So I just think as there's more outcry, more agencies are seeing what's happening here, that it will have to come to an end, just not soon enough. Yeah, it is soon enough to save at least some of these animals. I mean, it just seems like they're dying off as we speak. It's heartbreaking. I just learned, in fact, it was in the news yesterday, that it sounds like Senator Dianne Feinstein will not be running again. And Adam Schiff, he's going to be running for that seat. I think other Democrats will come up. So I'm, I'm not sure who the Democrat is that will be. I love Adam Schiff. And of oh, course, he is, me too. He, is, he is vegan. Right. And I think he would be a much more sympathetic well, almost anybody would, except for Diane Feinstein. She's, she's been a nightmare in so many different ways, and this, she's been, this included. Yeah, she's been in the pocket of ranching all along. So ridiculous she that she would be representing California. It yeah. is just ridiculous. So that sounds promising. That sounds very promising, getting somebody good in there. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. It's so interesting to be able to dig down deep into one particular campaign and understand the amount of effort and the amount of passion that has to go into this and the forces that you're up against. And it's really heartening to hear how much everybody is still really hanging in there for these elk. It's a disheartening and at the same time inspiring story. I know. You just, you have to look at the positive and all. I remind myself all the good people working on this and more people coming to it. And I do want to remind everyone, this is a national park. So we all have a say in this. It's not just a California issue. It makes a difference if you contact your people in Congress. I have the Capitol switchboard on my phone. (laughs) And so it's good because there's other causes I'm interested in too. So when I see that they need help, I just punch it in. You ask for your representative, they connect you and it takes literally a minute or two. I I was really nervous to do it in the beginning, but there's no need to be. No, they're always nice to you. I mean, because they want your vote. Like, like there's no chance that they're going to get mad at you. They may hate you, but they're not going to show it. (laughs) It's a couple of minute way of, of being involved and making your voice heard. Well, I hope everybody does that because I totally agree with you. These elk belong to all of us and, and we all have a role in protecting them. I mean, along with the cows as well, who are also suffering as a result of this travesty. Too much suffering all the way around. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from Meeting Place, and it's actually a guest blog from one Robin Gansert, who is the president and CEO of American Humane, which she says is the country's first national humane organization, which saves shelters and protects more than one billion animals worldwide each year. That's quite a claim, isn't it? They, they, they shelter a billion animals, I guess protects. That's a pretty broad uh, word. Anyway, I don't know a lot about American Humane standards for farm animals, but I I know they've been heavily criticized as as not being remotely adequate. So we need to take that into account when we think about the fact that Meeting Place is is publishing this guest blog from her. So she starts off by pointing out that poultry producers throughout the country gathered in Atlanta this week for the International Production and Processing Expo. Now, doesn't that sound like a good time? (laughs) Oh, boy. She wants to point out to people that for the animal agriculture industry, E, S, and G aren't enough. And that, of course, uh, stands for environment, social, and governance, which, you know, corporations in many, many different areas are worried about these days, that they're supposed to have some kind of uh, social conscience. But she says they aren't enough. It needs an A, and that's for animal welfare, because it's becoming a top issue. And these risks uh, that are caused by having inadequate policies in these areas uh, are calculated in addition to risks um, on environment or governance, and they should be taken just as seriously. So according to her, people care about animal welfare. And she said that within the industry, and I think this is pretty true, it's the discussion of these kinds of standards are dominated by sustainability. They love the word sustainability. It's nice and vague. And climate issues. Not that they're talking about climate nearly enough, but but yeah. And, you know, they'll talk about like the welfare of polar bears in the Arctic, but not about, about the welfare of farm animals. And that's certainly true. And she says, according to a recent poll that American Humane did, uh, 72% of Americans say that humane standards for chickens are important. You wouldn't know it from their buying habits, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not at all surprised at that. Like people, what people say and people do are are very different. She points out further that this is a conversation about animal welfare that people are already having. And the industry has to be part of that conversation. And if it isn't, animal liberation activists will gladly take the reins and drive the country in a more radical direction. So you kind of get the feeling for seeing where she's coming from, don't you? I assume the more radical direction is veganism. And so what she really thinks uh, needs to be done is, of course, what American Humane does, and that is, quote unquote, independent audits. And that would be good, independent audits. I'm not sure there is such a thing, but it would be good if there were. Because it doesn't, all of this doesn't mean that consumers expect producers to turn to some hostile entity for certification. And American Humane certainly has the reputation for not being a hostile entity. And that has unreasonable standards that would render all chicken too expensive for their dinner table. 
It also does not mean we abandon evidence-based practices in favor of some of the emotion-driven standards other certification groups have promoted. Yeah, like like what? And then this is the this is the killer line. Americans just want to know that animals are being raised free from hunger, thirst, pain, fear, or discomfort. They want to know that the birds are free to express normal bird behaviors. Certification helps ensure that. Well, yeah, if you have certification that are actually establishing that birds are being raised free from hunger, thirst, pain, fear, or discomfort, then yeah, that, that's going to be way too expensive uh, for uh, anybody's dinner table. And that is the way it should be. But, uh, you know, uh, this smells like scam to me. All right. Also from Meeting Place, a column from Angie Krieger, who writes the Pearls and Pork column. The title of this uh, column is Rooting for the Antihero. And first, I'm just going to turn to a definition of, of antihero uh, that I found online. It's from Merriam-Webster. A protagonist or notable figure who is conspicuously lacking in heroic qualities. Well, that sounds like the meat industry to me. So she agrees that it's the meat industry. I'm not sure she agrees that that's what, what uh, anti-hero means. She was inspired by a song by Taylor Swift, which I'm not familiar with, but which is probably really famous, um, called Anti-Hero. And she has concluded that the animal agriculture industries share some characteristics of the anti-hero, morally complex, imperfect but well-intentioned, stubborn to change. That doesn't sound like the definition I just heard. <laughs> but she thinks that the industry has been and continues to be villainized over and over for various reasons, how much money it makes, its environmental footprint, labor challenges. Uh, you know, again, we're leaving out, we're kind of leaving out the animals, as we usually do. They're also being villainized, Angie, for the fact that they don't even talk about animals, which is, you know, what they're in the business of. And, but she goes on to say that uh, anyone who really knows the industry knows that at our core, we have a passion for feeding the world. That's what makes them good. The fact that deep down inside, we are good, good in capital letters, is what draws people to the anti-hero. But in order to be seen as the anti-hero rather than the villain, we have to let consumers in. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> like, I think you're both an anti-hero. Well, I don't think you're an anti-hero at all, but definitely a villain. All right. And she thinks that 2023 should be the year that they start to try new things, set out to not just get older, but also wiser, challenge ourselves to be more vulnerable, to show our critics our redeeming qualities far outweigh any of the questions. All right. <laughs> she does admit that being emotionally invested in this industry and its mission can be exhausting, but we do it anyway. After all, we feed the world, which is quite heroic, if you ask me. I seriously think these people believe this stuff. I really do. I don't know. People can believe anything. All right. Finally, a, a story from Ireland. This is from Plant Based News. Dublin bus adverts promoting veganism spark backlash from politicians. This is, uh, I love this story. Uh, you know, we've seen stories like this before, but they're always entertaining. All right. This is ads published by Go Vegan World, which has been uh, doing this for a while. I've seen prior stories of this. And one of them says animal agriculture is the largest contributor to Ireland's greenhouse gas emissions. Veganism is the solution. Oh, radical, right? Uh, but according to, um, to this guy, Michael Collins, which is, you know, a proud name for my Irish history, but I'll, I'll leave that part out. He's a politician. He is accusing Dublin Bus of allowing highly misleading and toxic advertising posters. 
And another another poster included dairy takes babies from their mothers. Like like that's just true. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's just true. Like like what is even his claim here? So the the ads ran their course and they were paid for and they've now been taken down. But he's still on the rampage apparently. He says these adverts are part of a sustained and ongoing ideological assault on Irish agriculture that will not rest until the farmer who sells his stock is equated in a moral sense to almost being like a murderer. Well, yeah, exactly. He went on to claim that the transport company was willingly contradicting itself by allowing vegan messaging. This is due to having previously showcased pro-agriculture companies. Like his point here is, I guess, is that once once the bus company has an ad for something, they have to stick with that is what they believe in. Uh, the ad company, uh, the Dublin bus company is, is pointing out that they were not in violation of ad- any advertising standards. And that advertising formats are available to all brands, businesses, and organizations. Just because they put something up, I guess, doesn't mean that that, that's the position they're taking and they can never contradict it in any other ad. No, they make their advertising available to all as long as it's, you know, subject to the rules and guidelines and set set out in the Code of Standards for Advertising and Marketing Communications. That's, you know, that's all written down and there's no claim here that that's been violated. And so... Yeah, screw him. But he's still on the warpath. And according to the Dublin Bus Company, Go Vegan World has a legal right to freedom of expression. Public and semi-state bodies that sell advertising space must apply advertising policies in compliance with that right. They cannot remove ads simply because some people object to the content. I kind of love that this is like, this is bubbling to the surface in this way. You know, bring it on. Great work. Go Vegan World. Go Vegan World. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, Thanks to Eric Montgomery of The Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.